he's going to come at this time and, and present or give us a message from John chapter 1. Well, first of all, Merry Christmas. And then let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you humbly and we ask that you, through your spirit, would teach us through your word. Not so that we can simply know more facts about you, but from knowing more about you, that you would move our hearts to love you more. That's what we want. That's what we need. And so help us to do that, even as we focus on the story of the birth of your son on the special day that we set aside for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before I start, I always have to warn people who haven't heard me speak before that two things happen when I speak. I get nervous. And so one of two things may happen. First of all, I'm, I may end up becoming emotional and cry. Or uh, the other thing that happens when I get nervous is I fall asleep. If either of those things happen, just, you know, nudge me and we'll just keep going. All right, the, the only thing we can preach about on Christmas is this, the Christmas story. If you took Dad's quiz that he gave a, a while back, or if you know the scriptures, you probably know that the Christmas story that we usually think about is not found in John, John chapter 1. The last couple of years, my mind has run to John chapter 1 when I think about Christmas because, because it's like Christmas carols. About the day after Halloween now, they start playing Christmas carols, and they put, <laughs> they put up Christmas stuff in Walmart. I mean, they even put up Bible verses and read Bible verses, you know, the week before Christmas. And it becomes so, you know, I want to be careful, but it becomes so, uh, it inoculates you. It sears you, it sears your mind to the Christmas story that when you hear Luke chapter 2 read, it's like, oh, yeah, that's nice. That, that's a nice Christmas story to read. It, hearing those Christmas carols, even think about the words you just sang during the, the, the Christmas carols we were singing. They're so familiar, they're, they're almost so familiar that it becomes, oh yeah, that's just something we sing. The, the tune starts playing and the words just come out. You know, it's like the national anthem. That we don't think about what, what it means anymore. So when I think about Christmas, I, I come to John chapter 1 because John chapter 1 is going to arrest our attention away from a baby in a manger to who that baby is. And more specifically, why that baby came. So, Dad just read you John 1, 1 through 18. I want to look at four of these verses. And the difficulty here is that when we jump into the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John is, is so shallow on one hand that, you know, a mouse can, can wade across it. But it's so deep that an elephant can drown in it. It's made up of very simple words. I mean, John wrote in a very simple style. And yet it's so profound that we can get lulled to sleep by it. It's just these simple words, and we forget about the, the truth that is there. So I need to explain a couple things about John, and I, I'm hopefully going to do this quick enough that we can get to the meat of where we're going. Okay, so John is writing somewhere between 85 A.D. and 95 A.D. All right, what does that mean? That means that for over 50 years, approximately, Jesus has, he'd, he'd already been crucified, risen, and ascended for so 50 years. 
And so now John, is, as a very old man, is sitting down, and he's reminiscing on the life of his Savior. And he's going to write down some incidents that drive home a, a conclusion that he's going to bring us to. All right, this is not a day-by-day, minute-by-minute retelling of Jesus' life. John crafts his gospel to highlight who Jesus is. And he has three parts. Okay, he has the prologue, the main body, and the epilogue, or the post, the postscript there. So he sits down and he writes this gospel. Allow me a little bit of liberty. I believe he writes the main body, and he writes the epilogue. And then he goes back and he says, okay, I want to include, in my prologue, I want to include everything that's going to be important in the rest of this book. And so what he does in, in the first 18 verses of John here is he... He's going to start the themes that he's going to flesh out in the rest of the book, or that he has fleshed out in the rest of the book. And so the things that we see in the first 18 verses, you could spend years talking about them. I mean, I don't even know how many books have been written just about John 1, 8, 1 through 18. These are heavy, deep theological verses. I want to take four of them, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to dive into everything that's in them. So I just want you to know that I'm, I can't, we can't get into every single detail, but I want, you, I want to drive home what John is driving home, what John's going to drive home in the rest of his book, okay? So we need to have these three areas in mind, his prologue and the main body and the epilogue. At the end of the main body, we find these verses in John chapter 20. At the end of, of chapter 20, we find the purpose of the book of John. Now, this is John writing. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, okay? John doesn't include everything. But these, these that John has included, are written so that, here's the purpose, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's, he's crafting his book to that goal, to that end, and John 1, 1 through 18 is going to introduce all those things. So that's where we're at in this book. All right, there's three sections in verses 14 through 18. And John does this in, in a very unique way. He's actually crafted 1 through 18 in, in a, very, a very specific way. Verses 1 through 5 introdu- introduce us to the word. Okay, that's a very technical term. It's, sometimes you hear the, that word logos, but that's what that Greek word is. Logos, it translates to the word. Okay, this is a technical term that John is drawing on. The Word. Okay, that's why a lot of your Bibles will have it capitalized. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's a technical term in verses 1 through 5. Verses 6 through 9, he introduces John the Baptist. 10 through 14, he's going to, this is going to be the high point of his introduction, where the Word that he just introduced in verses 1 through 5 now becomes flesh. So 10 through 14 is the high point, and we're going to pick up right at the end of verse 14. Verse 15 reintroduces us to John the Baptist. So that correlates to verses 6 through 9. I know this is, this is, this is a little bit, we're getting, I'm getting into it more than I want to, but I'm trying to give you the, the, the outlook of 1 through 18. Okay. So 6 through 9 correlates with verse 15. So we're going to see John the Baptist there again. And then 16 through 18 is going to finish us off and describe the reason that Jesus came. 
All right, so we're right at the end of verse 14. Dad just read it, but let's read it again. I'm reading from the ESV, verse 14. And the word, that technical term there, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. All right, the unique word, the Baptist witness there, verses 16 through 18, the revealing word. Verse 14, the word, and I already alluded to this, so flip back to verses 1 through 5 there, because we need to, we need to understand who the word is. All right, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he, the word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or did not comprehend it. So the word that we find in verse 14 is the preexistent. It is a divine being. And the big deal here is that next phrase, that the word became flesh. That this divine being, the spirit being, now takes on humanity. Now, what John doesn't tell us right here explicitly is everything that that includes. I mean, our question is, how did that happen? What did it look like? I want to know all the intricacies, you know, did... Is he more man? Is he less God? Is he, is he more God, less man? Or is he fully God, fully man? But John is not getting into that right here. He's simply saying that the divine being took on flesh. Because that's, that's the high point of his message here in 1 through 18. That spirit being taking on flesh and becoming man. And the purpose for that is... That word dwelt. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, this word is translated here, dwelt, but it's also, the, the idea is that, uh, the, Greek, the Greek idea is he tabernacled with us. So when I say that word, tabernacled, what does that make you think of? Well, it makes you think of the Old Testament. What was the purpose of the tabernacle? The purpose of the tabernacle is a place where God came and dwelt with his people. And where his people could come and meet God. Okay, so think of that. The spirit being takes on flesh for the purpose of meeting with man. When we talk about meeting God, where do we meet God? We meet God in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, what does John see when he, when he meets God and he sees Jesus? What did John, John see? The, ne- the second half of the verse. And we have seen his glory, and John describes his glory or defines his glory two ways. The glory as the only son from the Father and full of grace and truth. Now, some of your translations probably say the only begotten son. It's not, it's not, not a wrong translation, but if you flip over to Hebrews 11, 11, verse 17, the same word is translated in Hebrews eleven seventeen. and I want to point it out to you because I want you, I want you to get the flavor of what John is, is, is getting at here. So by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up 
his only son. That's the same phrase, that monogenes, the only son. Now, the question is, was Isaac Abraham's only son? No, he wasn't. But Isaac was a unique son. He was a unique one because he was the son of the promise. This is the son that God had promised to Abraham through whom the world would be blessed, Isaac. So is John's use of that word, that, that word monogenes, is, is, he getting, is he trying to tell us that Jesus is God's only son, like Dad just introduced me as not his only son? Well, it's, that's not what he's lo- He's looking at the unique one of the Father. Okay, now how is Jesus going to be unique? Well, we're, we'll get into that in verse 16, but just keep that in your mind, that Jesus is the unique one. He's a one of a kind from the Father. All right, the second way that John saw his glory is this, that Jesus was full of grace and truth. He was full of grace and truth. Now, he's going to flesh this out in verse 16 also, so just, just hold off. But the rest of John's gospel, the rest of his book, he's going to push these, this fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. When Pilate asked, who is the truth, or what is the truth, that's Jesus. Okay, but he's going to use this term truth, and he's going to flesh that out th- for, throughout the rest of the gospel. Remember, he's introducing themes that he's going to expand on in the rest of the gospel. Verse 15, we have this, we have this parentheses there in verse 15. And actually, in the ESV, that's what they do, is they put it in parentheses. Because John is stepping away from talking about Jesus for just a, just a moment to reintroduce John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist is the greatest witness to Jesus Christ. John the Baptist is the final Old Testament prophet, if you want to put it that way. He's the forerunner, forerunner of Christ. I just put up John the Immerser because it makes me chuckle because John really wasn't a Baptist, but that's what we call him, all right? <laughs> it's John the Immerser. That's what, he's the one who baptized people in the Jordan, okay? There's two things that John is going to testify about. The first thing is the preeminence of Christ. So look at what John actually says. So John bore witness of him, of Jesus, and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. And that's, that is what he's saying, that this one who comes after me is to be listened to above me. I mean, just a couple verses later, verse 35, John says to, the next day John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him, and what do they do? They say, they heard him say this, and they follow Jesus. See, they leave John the Baptist, and they follow Jesus. Just a couple of chapters over, John 3.30, what does John the Baptist say? The famous, the, the very famous quote from his lips, he says, He must increase, and I must decrease. Because that's the purpose of John. John recognizes that Jesus has preeminence. All right, the second thing that, that John's witness about Christ is too is the preexistence of Jesus. Now, why does Jesus have preeminence over John? Because he who comes after me, he was before me. I mean, think of that statement. John recognizes through his, through his own words, John, the gospel writer, is telling us that John the Baptist recognized that Jesus 
was preexistent. That's a pretty, pretty. That's again, it's pretty deep stuff. It's heavy lifting, but don't miss, don't miss what he's he's pointing to. So John, the gospel writer, is including this because he wants to drive home the fact that Jesus is preexistent. The same thing that he did in verses one through five. The word was with God. The word was God. So that's John's witness, and really, it's just it's just a parenthesis to what we want to get to, which is verse sixteen through eighteen. All right, so I say it's a parenthesis, verse 15, because let's take out verse 15. We'll, we'll read verse 14, and we'll go right to 16, and you won't even miss it. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory as a, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skip 15. And from his fullness, we have all received. That's why I mean it's just a parenthesis. It's, it's, it's included because he, he's driving home this point, but it's, it, he's continuing his thought in verse 16 directly from the end of verse 14. From the fullness, which we see in verse 14, is full of grace and truth. So from that fullness, we have all received. One of the things that you may have picked up when, when Dad read the whole uh, section is this, that the first half of the section, John is describing events, third person. He's talking about the word. He's talking about those who received the word. He's talking, he's talking third person. And now in the, the second half, starting with verse 14, he moves to a very personal pronoun, which is us and we. He dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. And then verse 16 here, we all received. John is making this very personal. So what did they receive? And the end of verse 16 is what they received, grace upon grace. Now, if you have a study Bible, this is one of those, this is one of those things that I do not have all the answers to. I'm going to give you my answer because I, I believe that's where, with the rest of the text, I believe that's what John is writing about. But if you have a study Bible, it will probably have a, a note on this, and you can read that for yourself, search it out for yourself. But grace upon grace, the question is, what in the world does grace upon grace mean? There's really four options because the original language is not clear. Sometimes we can go back to the original language and the way that, that they wrote in Greek determines how we interpret and translate those, those phrases that are hard to translate. But here, it's very ambiguous. We're not sure exactly what that, what that, how that phrase is to be taken. And this isn't just me. This is all the commentators you want to read. But there's four basic ways. Three of those ways I'm not going to talk about <laughs> because I don't have time. And they don't incorporate verse 17. My problem is we have verse 17, which explains, I think, explains this phrase, grace upon grace. So we receive grace upon grace, verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So grace upon grace here, the, the best option, I believe, is that grace is replacing grace. And verse 17 explains that. That the law of Moses, or that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth has come through Jesus Christ. Now, if you're, if you're following me and I'm doing a good job of explaining it, your question is, how in the world is the law gracious? If grace is replacing grace, the grace of Jesus Christ has replaced the law of Moses, is what I'm saying. And I think what John is saying. How is the law gracious? I want to park here for just a second because I want to explain this so that, so that 
we can grasp it, because I think this is going to help us see in verse 18 why it's such a big deal. The grace of the law, why, how, is, how is the law of Moses gracious? Well, here, here's how it's gracious. The law of Moses removes our self-righteousness. Just think of the Ten Commandments. You probably can think of a, a couple. Probably the easiest one to remember is, thou shalt not lie. Okay? Real simple one. Do you think to yourself, just, it, this is the most basic question I can ask you. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever told a lie? Doesn't matter if it was a small lie. Doesn't matter if it was a big lie. Doesn't matter if it was a white lie. I mean, what do we, what, it's Christmas. How many of us have told our kids that they're Santa Claus? Oh, it's just a white lie. It's a lie, okay? All right, so what does that make us? makes us liars. Thou shalt not steal. Another pretty easy one. Okay, irrespective of how valuable the thing is that you took, irrespective of when you took it. Well, I was just a kid, and I just took my brother's car. If you stole something, what does that make you? If lying makes you a liar, stealing makes you a thief. Two of the Ten Commandments, how you doing? Not so good? Jesus takes the Ten Commandments and he internalizes them. He says that you've been taught of old that you shall not commit adultery. Okay, that's the Sixth Commandment. Don't commit, thou shalt not commit adultery. But Jesus takes that and he internalizes because God looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. And Jesus says, you've been told of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, he who looks at a woman and lusts after her, has committed adultery in his heart. Same thing for you ladies. If you've looked with lust, Jesus says that you've committed adultery. Okay, three out of the Ten Commandments, how we doing? If you've broken one, if you've broken one, are you innocent or guilty before God? Guilty. Right, flip over to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, this, when last Sunday... Dr. McCune was finishing up Revelation when I sat through uh, his Sunday school class. And it's real good news, real good news for Christians. But it's real bad news for, for those who stand before God guilty. Because Revelation 21, verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, which is the fifth commandment, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the second commandment, the liars, the ninth commandment, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Listen, that's some real bad news. I know it's Christmas. That's some real bad news. If we're guilty before God, our place is not in heaven you're guilty before God and you die in your guilt before God, where will you go? Heaven or hell? There's no in between. Say, well, God loves me and, and God, you know, God, I don't believe God would ever send me to hell. Well, I have really bad news for you again because you've just broken the second commandment. You've made a God in your mind that isn't the God of the Bible. We just, I just, I, that's why I read you that verse that all liars will have their place in hell, which is the second death. I, I, 
this is bad news. I know, I know the look on some of your faces. This is bad news. I know, I know it is. But the grace of the law is that, number one, God communicated with us in a way that we could understand. God, the creator, is not required to communicate anything to me. But God did. And he told me of his standard, which is perfection. And he gave me ten simple rules to judge myself by. And if I've broken one of those rules, I'm guilty before God. And if I'm guilty before God and I die in my guilt before him, my place is in the lake of fire, ultimately. That's the grace of the law, that God did that so we could see that and see our need for the Savior. So the grace of the law, and it is gracious, has been replaced by the grace of Jesus Christ. Well, how is that? How, or what is it that the grace of Jesus Christ is? Well, this is it, verse 18. Because no one has ever seen God... Some of your translations will have the only begotten Son who is at the Father's side or who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. Some of your translations may have the only God. Okay, that's the same, that the only is the same word that we looked at in verse 14, monogenes, the only begotten. This is the same word, the unique one from the Father, the unique Son from the Father, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared the Father to us. God expressed himself through the law so that every man, every woman, every child would have an exact account of who God is and how they measure up to who God is. And in Jesus Christ, we have an expression in terms that we can relate with of who God is. It's still about who God is, about who the Father is. But now we have a person that we can go to. First we have the unyielding, unbending law of God, which is gracious, but that just simply tells me I'm condemned and I stand guilty before God. But now we have a person, Jesus Christ, who declares himself to be one with the Father who declares himself, declares that when he works, his father works. The works that he does, his father is doing. The words that he says, his father is saying. He is the perfect expression of who God is. And in fact, <clears throat> when we talk about preaching, when we talk about, um, we talk about explaining, or the, another Greek word, exegesis, that's the word used here, he made him known. Jesus exegeted the father. I know that it's a fancy word, okay? But it means this, that Jesus perfectly explains who the Father is. And the, the reason that that's so important is because up to this point, Israel, the world, only had the law. When they looked into the law of God, it was guilty before God. And now they have a person that they can run to And what we're going to find out through the rest of the book of John and what John spends almost 
the majority of his book on is his, is, or not the majority, but the, the highlight of his book on is the passion of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Because that's, that's who the Father is. Now, going back to, to the law. Okay, so the bad news is we're guilty, okay? So you, you speed, and you go before the judge, and the judge says to you, you clearly broke the law. You have $50,000 fine. I don't know what, how fast you're going. You have a $50,000 fine. You are guilty. And you say, man, you know, judge, I, you don't understand. I was on the way to uh, visit some church members from, from, our, from our church that were in the hospital. And, you know, I had to pick up flowers and my, my wife's dry cleaning and, you know, all these things. Don't you understand? I was doing all these good things. And that's why I was speeding. So the judge is going to look at you and go, oh, you're right. Man, you're such a good person. You know what? I'm going to let you go. Yeah, you guys are smirking. Because we'd look at that and say, no, that judge is, I mean, probably a little bit wacko. And I'm wondering if you bribed them somehow. I mean, that, that makes no sense. It makes no sense. So when we stand before God and we're guilty... And we say, you don't understand, I, I've been a good person. I, I went to church every Sunday. I went to church on Christmas Day. I mean, I raised my kids, I brought them to church. You know, I gave to the church, I gave to missions, I, you know, I gave to these crazy people that went to Virginia Tech, whatever it is. Don't you understand, I've been a good person. And God is going to point to the Ten Commandments that he's given us And simply, he's not going to have to. He's not going to have to explain them to you. That's how easy the Ten Commandments are to, to understand. You're guilty. All the good things you've done doesn't remove the guilt that you have before God. But, but, because Jesus came, you stand guilty before God. He says, you. Let's go, back to the, let's go back to the traffic court. You have a $50,000 fine. And just before they take you out in handcuffs and throw you into the slammer, in walks somebody, writes out a check for $50,000, puts, puts it on the judge's stand, and the judge says, your fine has been paid. You can go free. Is that just? Yeah, your fine, $50,000, your fine was paid. You stand before God, guilty of eternal sin. And Jesus has come forward, and he didn't pay $50,000. He paid it with his own life. And so when God looks at Jesus' payment, his death, his burial, his resurrection... He can say, your fine has been paid, and you're free to go. See, the reason that we celebrate Christmas isn't because a baby came in a manger. I mean, it, it is, but that's not the culmination of the celebration of Christmas. The celebration of Christmas ends with the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. 
The reason that it's so exciting on Christmas to think about Christ is because the Word, the Spirit being, became flesh. And in that act of becoming flesh, He had one purpose, to save His people from, from their sins, to die for us. Because without that, we stand guilty before God and we have no way to pay for that penalty. What do we, what do we learn from these, this short time, these four verses? First, that we meet our need in the law of God. I hope, I, I hope I've explained that to you. I hope you understand your guilt before God. I don't want to, I hope that's not where I'm leaving you. But I want you to understand guilt before God. The second thing is that we meet Jesus through the word of God. Jesus is the answer to our problem of sin. We meet Jesus through the word of God. John is writing, he physically saw Jesus. You and I cannot physically see Jesus. So where do we go to meet with God? We go to the Word of God. And that's where we find Jesus. John seventeen seventeen. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus came and he was full of grace and truth. The truth of God's word is where we meet Jesus Christ. And because we can meet Jesus Christ there... We can meet the Father through His Son, through Jesus' Son. Because that's what ultimately this is about. We stand guilty before God. God is a good and just judge, which means that He cannot go against His law. And because of that, you and I are separated from God. But the way that we can be come one with God, that we can enter into fellowship, into, uh, into a relationship with God, is not by coming to church, is not by carrying the biggest Bible, is not by giving the most money. The way that our guilt is removed is because Jesus became flesh and died on the cross for our sins. And so now we can meet the Father through His Son. So why, why do we celebrate Christmas? Why, why did I take you to John chapter 1? Because I don't want you to end with the baby in the manger. As exciting as that is, that's only the beginning of the story. And the real joy, the real excitement comes in knowing what Christ did for us. At the end of the story, by removing our guilt before his father. So let's pray and then... Uh, dad or phil come back father we're grateful to you that you sent your son and though we are dead in our trespasses and sin though we are condemned criminals before the, your law because of your son because of his sacrifice on our behalf we can enjoy salvation not salvation for for or not salvation to a better life, but salvation because it removes our guilt and allows us to be with you. 
Lord, would you impress upon us even this day with all the trappings, with all the other things that go on. Lord, I do pray for a, a good celebration of your son's birth. But would you, would you encourage our minds and our hearts to run to the end of the story, to, the, to your son on the cross, and that that would fuel our celebration of your birth. So Lord, even, even as we think about these things and leave and, and go attend our, our, our different functions or, or the different family things that we have, would you impress upon us uh, your love for us shown through your son so that our guilt can be removed and we can be with you. We ask all these things in the name of your, your one and only, your unique, one-of-a-kind son. In the name of Jesus. If you uh, just want to give you an invitation, I think I'm most, most most of you, but if you are here this morning and you do know, do not know Christ, you are guilty. The Word of God has shown us who He sent, His Son, that you and I could have life. And with that in mind, let's all stand together. We're going to sing, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, to close our service. <laughs>